And uh, John chapter 1 takes us back into the eternity past and tells us that uh, Jesus did not, did not come into existence when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Instead, Jesus is the God-man, and as God, he existed in eternity past. This is the way it goes in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. My intention is to preach only from verse 14, but let's, let's read beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own, did, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now here's my text for today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll first of all think about why Jesus is called the Word and the significance of that. And then what does it mean that he became flesh? That's the second thing. And then the fact that he dwelt among us gives us opportunity to learn some things about Jesus. And then finally... What kind of glory did we see in him when he was dwelling among us? So those four points of the sermon. I hope that it's obvious to you that the word, W-O-R-D, is used here to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when, when we name our children, we, I would say that we mostly are just listening for what sounds good. Uh, and perhaps even put what sounds good above any meaning that we might attach to a, a name that we would give. Uh, so we, we named our firstborn child Elizabeth, and uh, I'm pretty sure that Elizabeth means God is my rest, Eli, Eli, God, Sabbath, rest, Elisabeth probably means God is my rest. I'm not sure, I just think that's probably what it means. Uh, and then, you know, we named other, like, our second born is Abigail. I'm not sure what uh, Abigail means, uh, but her, her middle name is Gallion. That's my wife's maiden name, Abigail Gallion. We thought that sounded good. Not sure what Gallion means, G-A-L-Y-E-N, not spelled like the ship, so not sure what a Gallion is. So, you know, I could go through the names, and yeah, we named, we had Elizabeth Elliot in mind when we named Elizabeth Elizabeth, and we had Elizabeth, the wife of Zachariah, in mind when we named her, but how did it sound? That was a, that was a big factor to us. Um, my name is not James, it's Jimmy, 
And uh, as far as I can tell, Jimmy usually comes before rigged. And it just means that you don't really know what you're doing. And so you Jimmy rig it. And uh, no, I know that Jimmy is uh, like a diminutive of James, J- Jamie, Evely. And James comes from Jacob, which means, well, literally it means supplanter, one who grasps the heel. But, uh, you know, that's not my, my name's not Jacob. My, name, no, my parents weren't going to say, hey, this kid's going to grab people by the ankles. He's going to be a great football player. We're going to name him Jacob. No, they named, they named me Jimmy Scott because my dad's name is Jimmy. My dad's name was Jimmy Bob. Not James Robert, Jimmy Bob. And uh, so they named me after my dad. And then they just thought Scott sounded good. But that's not the way that names were given in the Bible. It wasn't just, hey, this sounds good. There are many examples of that, but since we're talking about Jesus, I'm going to limit myself to examples from the life of Jesus. So when, when an angel appears to Joseph and tells him, uh, don't be afraid to marry your betrothed, Mary, because it's true that she's pregnant, but it's been, the child is a holy child conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I don't know if you knew this, but the name Jesus means Savior. Jesus is a kind of an English pronunciation of a Greek pronunciation, of a Hebrew pronunciation, which is probably Yeshua, what we would call Joshua. And it just means Savior. So Jesus is given the name Savior. And then also it's said he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he gets the name Emmanuel, not just because it just has a good sound, because it really means something. Jesus has many names throughout the Bible. I'm Alpha and the Omega. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's called the Lord, the one who's in control, the boss. He is called Christ, which actually is a title that really has morphed into a name. We use it like, like it was his name. It means the anointed one. And so we could uh, go through other names of the Lord Jesus, and none of them are just chosen for the reason that they sound good. They're chosen because they reveal something about his character. And that is true of the name that is given to Jesus here. He is the Word. He is, well, a word is not gibberish. A word means something. Uh, there, you know, there are times when a baby is just uh, babbling and making baby sounds and raspberries and, and all kinds of things. And then one day the baby says, the mama. And it's like, did you hear what she said? She said, mama. And uh, for, uh, it was probably just an accident, but she gets so much attention from it. And then she starts to learn that when she says mama, she's going to get attention for that. And then it has meaning to it. What was just babbling, just playing around with your lips, turns into, hey, there's meaning here. One of my favorite uh, stories from literature is actually a a real-life thing that happened in the life of Helen Keller. So you older people know who Helen Keller was, but you young people may not know that Helen Keller was a, a person who was born 
able to see and able to hear, but she had a terrible disease when she was just a little child, and it left her blind and deaf. So how are you going to communicate with a a blind and deaf person? Most blind people can hear so you can talk to them. Most deaf people can see so you can do sign language with them. But Helen Keller could neither see nor hear. And she was just like a little wild animal. She write this about herself. You can read the story of her life. And uh, she was just like a little wild animal. And they tried everything they could. And one day they got a teacher named Ann Sullivan who came and started teaching Helen sign language that was sign. The signs were formed on the palm of her hand. And, uh, but for Helen, it was just a game. She couldn't figure it out until one day Ann and Ann Sullivan and Helen Keller were out in the yard where there was a pump. And uh, I suppose it was Ann who pumped water, and she put Helen's hand under the water and signed the word water. And suddenly Helen realized, this all means something. Everything has a name. And she describes how that she started running around the yard and touching things. What is this? She wanted to know. And so Ann Sullivan would put the sign in her hand. Suddenly there's meaning in a world of nonsense, in a world of gibberish, in a world of darkness and silence. Suddenly there's words. And Jesus is here called the Word. In a world of gibberish, in a world of nonsense, in a world of of blindness and deafness, God, in his mercy and in his intelligence, thinks a word and speaks the word. Now, Jesus is more than just a thought in God's head. Jesus is a person. He is the second person of the Trinity. But to help us to feel the weight of it, that's what words are. Words are thoughts, intentions, plans, that gets spoken. In this way, I think that it's fair to say that when Jesus is called the Word, we might say He is the decree of God. He is God's plan. Jesus is the plan that God had in His mind for what He was going to do with, with the world. And then he, he speaks that Word. He doesn't speak the Word into existence because... God has always existed. God the Son has always existed. But He speaks the Word into this world. And this Word is a Word of revelation. Now we can hear what God has to say. We've had the aha moment with our hand under the spigot in the yard. This is what God thinks. This is not just a Word of revelation. It's also a Word of declaration. This is what God commands. This is what God, this is what God asks of us. This is what God demands of us. Jesus tells us that. It's a word of revelation. It's a word of declaration. It is, it is a word that also shows God's intention for what he's going to do with humans. So humans fell from a position of prominence in the universe to a place where they were lower than the angels. 
And so when Jesus became a man, he was for a little while made lower than the angels. And specifically, he was made lower than the angels in that he became capable of death. So angels are immortal. Angels don't die. And when Jesus is, becomes flesh, when he becomes a man who can die, then he is made for a little while lower than the angels. But and I'm quoting part of Psalm chapter 8 when it says, What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. And then the next phrase says, You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, the writer of Hebrews takes this up in chapter 2, and he says, the fact that the Messiah had to be someone who was capable of death is something that is taught in the Old Testament. For example, it says in Psalm 8, he is made for a little while lower than the angels. And that's talking about his, he became mortal in his, in, in his human nature. It was a human nature that could die. And then he recognizes, the writer of Hebrew recognizes that the next phrase could cause some confusion. Because the next phrase, let me give it to you in its context, it says, You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have put all things under his feet. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, This is a scripture that is fulfilled. God has determined that he is going to exalt human beings again to a place of prominence and dignity in the universe. They will no longer be lower than the angels. They are going to have all things put under their feet. But then the writer of Hebrews says, well, we don't see them under under his feet yet. And then he says this, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, in this word that Jesus, that Jesus is, it's not just revelatory, it's not just declarative, it also is prophetic. It also is saying this is what God is going to do with human beings. He is going to raise them from the dead and glorify them and exalt us who believe in Jesus to a place of prominence once again. And even now, We are risen with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places where where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So this word that God speaks is, it reveals what God is thinking, reveals what his plan is. It declares the way that this plan is implemented. And then it also prophesies what the Lord is going to do with, with human beings. Jesus is the first one that it happened to. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And here it says that the Word was made flesh. Now, so now I'm getting into my second point. So we've been thinking about the Word. What is it that He was made flesh? Well, I'm going to divide this into two sections. The first section is not this. Second section, but this. So when the Word was made flesh, well, first of all, it's not what you would expect. When you're reading along... He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. How could that be? He came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Kind of parenthesis. Yet to as many as did receive him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. End of parenthesis. 
But the last thing that we had before the parenthesis was, he's in the world, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. What do you expect next if you're a first-time reader? Not the word became flesh, but therefore the word took a thunderbolt and destroyed that disrespectful people. Therefore the word uh, flexed his muscles and... uh, smashed all the people who disrespected him and who would not recognize him and who did not receive him. And so it's a little surprising that what you have next is the word became flesh. So it's not what you would expect. Then also, this is important, when the word became flesh, he did not become a sinful human. Now the word flesh is sometimes used that way in the Bible. So, for example, in Romans chapter 8, it says, those who set their mind on the flesh cannot please God. In that context, the word flesh means uh, a person who lives as if the world of the flesh is the only world that there is. That's what it is to live according to the flesh. Live as if the world of the flesh is the only world that there is. So when it says that Jesus was made flesh, it's not saying that he became a person with Sinful desires, no. Uh, This puzzles people sometimes when it says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Now, throughout most of our lives, we have thought of temptation in terms of a desire for something that is forbidden. So if, uh, if if we want to be intimate with someone who is not our spouse, that's a temptation. And You know, we can rebuff it, but just the very fact that we want to be intimate with someone who is is not our spouse, that's a sin. There's there's so much confusion about this today, even in Christian churches. I I hear this kind of discussion, especially in discussions regarding homosexuals. They say, well, what if if someone is same-sex attracted, but they never act on it? Is it sinful for them to have... Uh, desires for intimacy with someone of their same gender, even if they never act on it. And I just say, what else is lust? What is lust? Lust is wanting something that you're not allowed to have. And specifically, in most cases, it's wanting to have intimacy with someone that you're not married to. That's lust. And so, when Jesus became flesh... He did not have those kind of desires. People say, well, then how could he be tempted in every way just as we are? Because when we're tempted, we think, I want something bad. Here's what temptation is. Temptation is an illegitimate shortcut. Usually leads to a legitimate goal, but it's an illegitimate shortcut. Now, I don't want to take too much time with this, but, uh, but probably you're curious about it, and so let me take a few minutes. So, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the devil says, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, having all the kingdoms of the world is something that God had promised to Jesus, and it's something that God was going to give to Jesus, but it was going to be through a specified plan. You're going to die, you'll be raised again, you'll be glorified You'll sit at my right hand until I make an enemy's a footstool for your feet. Ask of me and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance. So that's the plan spelled out in Psalm number 2. 
And devil says, now, I know that eventually you're going to get the kingdom of this world, but let's just, let's just make a shortcut. If you'll bow down and worship me right now, I'll go ahead and give them to you right now. Illegitimate shortcut to a legitimate goal. And this is the temptation. Jesus, Jesus doesn't fall for it at all. No. Jesus is able to see through that scam the way that you have learned to see through these emails that you get where some Nigerian prince has $20 million that he wants to give to somebody and he pulled your name out of a hat. And at first, you know, 20 years ago, you look at that stuff and say, could this be true? And your kid said, Dad! <laughs> and so you know these, this is a scam. You're able to see it as a scam right away. That's the way Jesus saw these illegitimate shortcuts. I'll give you another example. So uh, the devil says, if you're the son of God, make these stones become bread. Now, Jesus had the power to multiply bread. He did it later on. Uh, but Jesus at that, and it's, it's legitimate to eat food when you're hungry. So no sin in eating food when you're hungry. But the devil is proposing an illegitimate shortcut. Misuse your powers. Don't submit to God here. God has told you not to use your powers for these selfish purposes, but you should go ahead and do it. And, and Jesus sees this is a scam. It is an illegitimate shortcut to a legitimate goal. And so he answers, my, my primary responsibility in life is to submit to what my father says and not to what my body says. It is written, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when Jesus became flesh, he did not become a person like we are, who was born with a predisposition to be fooled and allured by sinful shortcuts. So when he became flesh, it's not what you would expect. It's also not sinful. So what does it mean when the word became flesh? Well, let's notice several things about flesh. First of all, all of these ideas that I'm getting ready to say have to do with this is a pretty humbling thing to say about Jesus. Contrast it with the Word became a human. Now, the Word became a human would be an instance of his humiliation, but it's not even that lofty. It's the Word became flesh. Flesh. Dogs and horses have flesh. Rats have flesh. It's, he became really a person with, with flesh. Now, it's pretty humbling if you just think about it that way, but this was, has been quite controversial throughout history. At the time of Jesus, there were people who said anything physical is inescapably evil. So there are two forces in the world. There are... Uh, spiritual forces, and some of them are good, some of them might be evil, but everything that is purely good is purely spirit. Anything that becomes physical is inescapably evil. And so people who were influenced by that philosophy said, well, Jesus is the Son of God, but he never actually became a, a real man. He never became, he never took on flesh. Instead, it just looked like it. It just looked like he was a man. And uh, 
But no, believing that Jesus became a real human with real flesh is an inescapable, cardinal, fundamental doctrine of Christianity. It says in the, in the book of 1 John chapter 4, we are to try the spirits to see whether or not they come from God. And you know what the test was? 1 John chapter 4? Any spirit that says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And any spirit that will not say that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. And so this was a really big deal. And this is a very appropriate sermon for me to preach on the day when we're going to observe the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, when we've got bread that represents the body of Jesus and we've got grape juice that represents the blood of Jesus. Jesus became a real man. And so there's, when you say that he became flesh, there's, there's humility built into that because flesh is frail. Flesh has to be taken care of. You've got to take care of that little baby. He's not going to make it if you don't take care of him. That little, that little calf is not going to make it if somebody doesn't feed that little calf. That little puppy is not going to make it if somebody doesn't feed that little puppy. Flesh is frail. Flesh is fickle. Flesh is fussy. Flesh has to be taken care of. When you have flesh, then you get tired, you get hungry, you get thirsty. Sometimes you get sick. You've got to take care of your body. Jesus became flesh. He humbled himself. The, the eternal God who dwelt in inapproachable light took on flesh. And then let's move on thirdly and see that not only did the word become flesh, but it says next that he, he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. I think I've seen something in the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this sermon that I hadn't seen before. As, as I am, I'm recommending to you that you read through the Gospels every month this, this year, so... Just if Elizabeth put a schedule in the bulletin, if you follow that schedule, then you'll read through all four Gospels in the month of January. And uh, I'm planning on reading all four Gospels every month during the next year, encouraging you to do it as well. And uh, I'm I'm reading a harmony of the Gospels. I plan to uh, buy, have Elizabeth buy some harmonies of the Gospels and. Hopefully next Sunday we'll have some harmonies available, very useful tools. So I'm reading, reading a harmony of the gospel that has some notes in there that were done by A.T. Robertson, who was a Greek scholar that taught at Southern Seminary in Louisville. And he pointed out something that I never, I, I never knew. He said 11 of the 12 disciples were from Galilee. Only Judas was from Judea. I'm not sure how he, he came up with that information because I can't think of how it is in the Bible. I mean, it's obvious that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were from Galilee. But uh, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out how did, he, how did he know that all 11. But let's just grant that he's right. Galilee's the bad part of the country. Galilee's where the rednecks live. And he, he gets 11 of the 12 disciples out of redneck Galilee, uncultured Galilee. And so John, who's writing this, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is one of them who is is one of those Galileans who says, He lived with us. The Word was made flesh and He stayed with us. When I was in England, I uh, ate at this little restaurant and uh, there was a plaque over the fireplace, just a little hole in the wall place that it said something like, you know, King so-and-so the, the third stopped and ate here when he was fleeing from so-and-so in the year 1296. You know, same building, he stopped and he ate here. But that's something for hundreds of years they've been proud of. The king stopped here and ate. There's a, in the little town where I grew up, there's a, a hotel, uh, old building, used to be a hotel, it's called the Roosevelt. And as I understand, it's gotten named that because one of the Roosevelts stayed there. Kind of a matter of pride when somebody, somebody important and famous comes to, to your town and stays with you, stays at your house. Feel that when John says the Word was made flesh and He lived with us. He stayed with us. It gave us, it gave us opportunity to learn from Him. It gave us opportunity to observe Him. Because you know the people that you live with, you really learn what they're like. I mean, you know that from the experience of getting married. You date someone for months, maybe years, and you think you know them. And then you start living with them. And you find out all this stuff. I remember when Carol and I went for marriage counseling uh, before, before we were married, premarital counseling. The, uh, the guy says, well, Jim, you uh, see anything about Carol that bothers you? I look at Carol and Wipe a little sliver away from my mouth, a little slobber. No, I think she's perfect. I didn't use that phrase, but that's what I thought. I don't see anything wrong with her. Carol, is there anything that bothers you about Jim? No, nothing. I promise you, if you'd ask us one month into marriage, is there anything that bothers you about her, I would have had a list. And she would have had an even longer list. You get to know people that dwell with you. And John says, he, he dwelt with us. We saw, we saw his glory. And so now I'm into my fourth point. So he, he dwelt with us, and we have seen his glory. What kind of glory is that? You know, there's a, there's a kind of glory that I admire from a man who is a sure enough man. A man who is not afraid to embrace his manhood and, and be a man and stand for something and, and not be mean-spirited about it, but just to be a strong man who's able to lead his family and able to lead his wife. There's something that is really glorious about a man who, who is a real man. And there's something that is glorious about a woman who has made up her mind that she is going to be a follower of Jesus and she is going to do everything that the Lord calls her to do with, with the, the help of the Holy Spirit. That's a, just a glorious thing to see someone who is living out their full humanity. But that's not the kind of glory that John says, I saw. We saw a glory in Jesus that there's just no way that you can explain it, but that he is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Can you imagine being with uh, 
the disciples on that boat on the Sea of Galilee. The waves are tossing and the wind is blowing. And these seasoned fishermen who have grown up on the sea begin to realize this is the end. We are going to go down in this storm and we're going to drown. And Jesus is asleep. And so I can imagine that some of them say, hey, maybe we ought, I, maybe we ought to wake up Jesus. It just, well, he's had a hard day. Let's let him rest, but let's see if we can get to shore. And so they try their best to get to shore, and it's getting so bad that finally somebody says, I'm waking up Jesus. And they wake up Jesus, and Jesus sits up, and I can just imagine that he kind of wipes the sleep out of his eye, and they say, Master, we're about to drown. Don't you care that we're about to drown? How can you sleep in a time like this? And Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. Peace. Be still. And the wind stops. And the waves just settle down. And I can imagine that for about a good five to seven minutes, nobody said anything. Maybe Jesus curled back up and went back to sleep. I don't know. But somebody said, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of a man is this? There was a time when Jesus and his disciples are walking along outside of a city called Nain. And a woman who had only had one son is walking behind the the casket of this one son. Naturally, she's crying. She's a widow, no husband, no more children. She's crying, and Jesus comes up and stops her, and he says, don't cry. And he touches that dead boy, and he gets up alive. And you can imagine that the people around were saying, what kind of a man is this? What kind of a glory is this? There was a time when Jesus took John, the writer of this, Peter and James. They go up on a high mountain. And while they're there, a couple of figures from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, come and they're talking with Jesus. Peter and James and John were kind of sleepy, but when they see this, they become fully awake. And Peter feels like he's got to say something. And so he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me build Three little shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While that's going on, Jesus is shining so bright that it's brighter than the snow with the sun shining off of it. He just He's glowing. And I can imagine that in the days that followed, Peter and James and John said, What kind of a man is this? What kind of a glory is this that we have seen? And then John writes this. We have seen his glory. It wasn't a mere human glory. It wasn't just that he was a pure man who learned how to manipulate atoms. We have seen his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. It was the glory of God. It was the glory that revealed A truth about God that we had not understood very well before. 
There's at least two of them in the Godhead. And then through the teaching of Jesus, it becomes clear that there are three persons in the Godhead. But that's clear because it's the glory of the only begotten of the Son from the Father. And then this glory that came from Jesus is also a balanced glory. So it's a divine glory. It is a, it is a teaching glory. But it's also a balanced glory. Look at how this verse concludes. Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. If you have grace without truth, grace degenerates into a flabby sentimentality. Where you have truth without grace, grace, where you have truth without grace, then truth degrades into a rigid legalism. But when you have grace and truth together, you have the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse really is a a concise summary of the gospel and even the terms of the gospel. The terms of the gospel being that you must receive God's grace, which is offered to you in principles that are in accordance with truth. God does not agree to save sinners just because sinners want to be saved. Sinners must be saved in accordance with principles of truth. And that is why the Word became flesh. That's why the Word became flesh that was frail, flesh that was fussy, flesh that was capable of dying. This is the way it's put in Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that through death, He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. The wages of sin is death. If a substitute is going to stand in the place of sinners, then that substitute must be able to endure the penalty that is imposed upon the crime. And the penalty is death. The second person of the Godhead cannot die. But when the second person of the Godhead was made flesh then he became someone who was capable of dying. And he did. And his death on the cross was a substitutionary death. He was standing in the place of sinners. He was being penalized for the wages of our sin, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid on him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And after Jesus died and satisfied the wrath of God, then God raised him from the dead as a way, among other things, of saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and I have now appointed him to be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He will never die And so he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to me through him. And so how insulting it would be to God for us to ignore this very costly way of salvation that he has provided or to think that we were in some way going to enhance it by our own works. Be insulting. 
And so the teaching of this verse of Scripture is receive the grace that God has spoken in the Word Jesus Christ, the grace that is in perfect union with God's truth. And then God is just and He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Before Jesus left, He gave a simple meal to His disciples consisting of bread and the fruit of the vine. And He said, you do this in remembrance of Me. And so while we take this supper today, we're remembering that Jesus became flesh. Flesh that had blood in it. This is a meal that is for people who have already received Christ and followed Him in baptism. And so if you have not become a Christian, this is not going to make you a Christian. This is a symbolic meal. And it symbolizes something that has already happened in your life. That you have received Christ similar to the way that you're going to put this food and drink into your mouth. And chew it up and swallow it or drink it. That you said, that has already happened in my life. And the first act of obedience that the Lord requires is that you should be baptized. And so if you have been born again and baptized by immersion, then we welcome you to take this meal with us. If not, then, then uh, we counsel you abstain. So I'd ask for those uh, brothers who are going